Peter says in verse 16, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And Father, we ask this morning that as we look into the very word of God, that you would give us a heart of faith and expectancy that believes that, Lord, even as it was spoken initially, that it still has the power to speak presently. And that you have a word for each one of us in this very room this morning because your word is alive and powerful. So we pray, Lord, like a sharp two-edged sword, it would enter into our life and it would divide between soul and spirit, that it would judge the thoughts and intents of our hearts, and that your word would be profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that as men and women of God we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So Lord, we look to you, prepare us by the power of your spirit, and we ask that you would speak to us through the person and the ministry of your spirit, that you would be our teacher, and you'd speak to us personally in Jesus' wonderful name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful to know for certain that you heard God speak directly to you. I think that in the deepest part of every person, whether they already know the Lord or whether they don't yet know God in a personal way, that there is a part of us that longs to have the very living God be able to speak directly to us. And I guess the question becomes, is there a way then to be sure that you know that you have heard God speak? Well, the passage in front of us and what it's dealing with kind of addresses some of those very things. Now, what Peter is saying in these verses, in some ways, really is kind of laying a foundational backdrop for where he is going to be going and some of what he is going to share in his comments ahead. At this point, Peter has resonated on his heart, as we talked about as we began our study in Second Peter. He has concerns regarding the influence of false teachers and the things that they are beginning to propagate among the people of God. And he's going to spend, as we'll see beginning next week in chapter 2, the entirety, really, of chapter 2 dealing specifically with the issue of identifying and describing false teachers how they were misguiding people spiritually, how these false teachers were also seeking to manipulate people for personal gain and using the things of God as just really an inroad to be able to take advantage of people for selfish benefit. And in the midst of that, there were also at this time the presence of voices that were contradicting very important doctrines in the scripture, particularly we'll see when we get to chapter three, contradicting even the important 
important doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and beginning to mock the fact that such a thing would actually even happen, that the Lord Jesus would return once again. So Peter, in light of these things here, wants to protect believers from being misled spiritually or being manipulated in some way personally. So he gives to us a reminder here of the sure foundation that we can and that we should build our lives upon to stand on as a safeguard for ourselves. And that is the credible testimony of not what people are saying in the spiritual environments around us, because there are lots of voices out there now as there was then, but instead that we should build our lives upon the credible testimony of what God himself has said, what God has said regarding his son, and what God has recorded for us clearly in the record of scripture, because if we hold fast to those things, as an anchor for our lives and our souls, then the benefit of that is we will not then be pushed off course by the currents of what voices around us are saying in the culture. Now, if you look with me in verse 16, as we read verses 16 through 18, we find Peter referring to something in his life that he once experienced, and he's bringing it again to the attention of the believers that he's speaking to. He says in verse 16, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables, that is myths or stories, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but, he says, we were actually eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he, Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter here is basically referring to a time in his life. He's recalling an experience that he himself had, a personal spiritual experience, and he's specifically reflecting upon, we can tell from the language and what we have recorded in the Gospels, he's reflecting upon that powerful spiritual experience he got to share in that the Bible often calls the transfiguration of Jesus. The transfiguration of Jesus is recorded for us in all three synoptic gospels. In Matthew's account in chapter 17, it's recorded for us in Mark's gospel. It's recorded for us again in Luke's gospel. And what I'd like to do is we kind of are going to talk about that for a few minutes is just to read the account from Matthew's gospel specifically to just maybe reacquaint our familiarity with what Peter is specifically referring to in his comments here. And as well, I don't want to take for granted if you're new to the Bible, uh, if you have only been following Jesus for a short period of time, maybe you haven't been reading the word of God uh, for a long period of time, or maybe you're here this morning, you don't even uh, know Jesus and you're just you know visiting and seeking the things of God. Uh, I want to make sure that you understand scripturally exactly what Peter is referring to and the greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. So I want to read to you this account of the transfiguration of Jesus that Peter is talking about and referring to here. Uh, I'll read it to you if you want to follow along. I'm going to give reference to the last verse of chapter 16 and the first few verses of chapter 17. If you want to turn to Matthew 17, you can read along. If not, you can just listen, but it lays the backdrop for what Peter is referring to. In fact, the last verse of chapter 16 
and it's very important to what the transfiguration is about. The last verse of chapter 16, Jesus made this statement. He said, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here, talking to his disciples, who shall not taste death, that is, they won't die, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then the text goes on in Matthew 17 to say, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he led them up onto a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. The language literally indicates he was metamorphosized. He went through a metamorphosis. The idea is that the glory of God, because he was God in the flesh, began to radiate out of him. The deity and the humanity that Jesus both was at the same time fully God and fully man. And yet he was God clothed in human flesh. He wasn't man who became God. Jesus was God who became man for a period of time and lived among us. So deity took upon himself humanity, but yet at this point in the transfiguration, the deity of Christ began to radiate out in his glory as he was transfigured before the disciples there on that holy mountain that day. And it says, Jesus' face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, in that moment, Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament saints who had died hundreds of years ago, appeared there to them talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of that cloud. Notice speaking from heaven, God the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. The implied idea, Peter, be quiet and listen to him. You know, Peter had this tendency where he, when he didn't know what to say, he felt like he at least needed to say something. Uh, much like many of us sometimes. Always a good reminder. When you don't know what to say, the better idea is say nothing rather than have God correct you from heaven. That's quite embarrassing. So God says, this is my beloved son. I want my attention on him. Listen to him. Hear him, Peter. If somebody's going to say something, let's wait for God to say something. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid, understandably so. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, I love the way this reads, they saw no one but Jesus only. I'll tell you, when you have a spiritual encounter and a genuine spiritual experience, I think that should be the end result. That your eyes are so focused on Jesus, you don't see anyone. You're not impressed by Moses, Elijah, or anything or anyone else, but your eyes are riveted upon Jesus. To me, this is a biblical spiritual experience. When they got up, they saw no one but Jesus only. And they came down from the mountain and Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, back here in Peter's account, if you're not there, come back with me to Peter's account. Peter states in verses 16 to 18 a few things regarding this incredible spiritual experience that he has here. Uh, and he's referring to this event in his life now in his letter, talking to the believers he's writing to. And the first thing he's trying to do in these verses, really, is to assure them that what he shared in and experienced that day 
was utterly credible and completely reliable. Uh, you notice that Peter says here in verse 16, he says, look, we were not following cunningly devised fables, myths or stories when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, verse 16, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, he's indicating, look, when we made known to you the things that we did about Jesus, the power and the coming of the Lord that we saw and experienced for ourselves. He says, look, please understand. He says, we were not just passing along cunningly devised fables. In other words, Peter's trying to say we were not, we were not just naively following some human myths of fanciful stories that we had heard from other men regarding spiritual things and then decided, you know, those are some pretty stimulating stories and those are some really interesting things. So, so let's just pass those on and let's keep them going from one generation to the next. And I think this is, is paramount, especially for Peter as an apostle and follower of Jesus, because we have to understand, again, who's writing these things by the inspiration of the Spirit. Above all the disciples... Peter was not a naive man. By temperament, Peter would not have been someone that was gullible. And I'll tell you why. Because Peter, by trade, was a fisherman. And fishermen, if anybody, understood and knew how people told big catch stories. You catch my drift by that? You know, fishermen understood the idea of telling the big catch story. How you, well, we caught this, and it was actually this big, when, when maybe it really was only this big. So Peter, being a fisherman, was not the personality or temperament who would have been a gullible individual. He was not naive. He wouldn't just buy into some story that somebody would tell. He'd say, no, I want to see it. I want to see the fish. Don't tell me how big it was. I want to see it for myself. He wasn't a naive person. He wouldn't have been a gullible individual who would settle for just stories or myths. And that's why Peter, no doubt, is saying, look, the truth is, listen, he says, we were eyewitnesses of this. We saw it ourselves. We're not just telling you something that we heard from someone else's story. We're telling you what we experienced directly ourselves on that very day together with the Lord. Nor was Peter or the apostles ever making up themselves clever stories to try and entice or allure people to kind of just gain their attention or to gather a following. They, you know, the disciples weren't getting together and having planning sessions of how they could invent really stimulating accounts of spiritual things and, hey, if we can create an interesting enough story and just be persuasive enough, then through deceptive lies and stories we could pass these things on through the generations listen gang if that was the case these individuals would never have died and let themselves been martyred for their faith in christ because and, and we know historically that many of the early disciples and apostles w were put to death for their faith the first time somebody had the knife to someone's throat or was ready to put someone to death they would have said it's all a hoax I admit it, don't take my life. And they would have caved in under the pressure. They would not have died and sacrificed their lives if these were not true things that they experienced themselves. It's the fact that they did experience these things, why they were willing to say, if you want to take my life, take my life. I'm that sure. I'm that confident. It's that reliable. Peter says we were eyewitnesses. We were right there as it happened. And we're not telling you something we heard about. 
We are telling you things that we experienced for ourselves personally as eyewitnesses. And again, in a judicial proceeding, in a courtroom, is it not true that the eyewitness who gives testimony is usually the one who has the most credibility in what they're saying? If someone is a genuine eyewitness, usually their testimony has much greater reliability and weight and credibility. And in spiritual life, listen, there will be, and there has always been, there will always be the presence of very persuasive voices who are saying things and who are trying to persuade people with what they believe or what they're trying to promote. But the question must always be this. No matter how persuasive someone sounds or how great they communicate, the question is whether or not is there any real personal experience with the very things that you're talking about. Because a person can share great and persuasive things and be very intellectually persuading, but we have to be careful of listening to someone or following someone just because they're extremely interesting. I would encourage you instead better to listen to those that you know and have proved are genuinely reliable, that they've experienced those things themselves and that they are saying things out of personal experience and you can see that personal experience and that gives a greater level of credibility. And I tell you this, the most powerful testimony that you can give to others is by just sharing with people what the Lord has done in your own lives. It's not about being persuasive. It's not about, listen, it's about being genuine. For you to say, can I tell you what Jesus has done in my life? Can I share with you what God's done in me? And when you tell that to someone else, the weight of that credibility has a much higher impact than the most perfectly packaged presentation of insights and ideas or clever little statements. No, just share what the Lord has done in your life. That's what Peter was doing. Jesus said, you know, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me. Witnesses. A witness just tells what they have seen, heard, and experienced. And that's the greatest powerful influence that we can have. Secondarily, notice that Peter also, as he talks about the transfiguration, he says that that transfiguration experience, he says it actually portrayed aspects of the second coming of Christ and his kingdom. Notice as Peter refers to the transfiguration here in verse 16, he calls it, he says, the power and coming, verse 16, of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the event of the transfiguration really foreshadowed what it would be like when Jesus Christ will return and come back and establish his kingdom and reign in his power and glory. I want you to think about this. In the transfiguration, really, you have a very interesting representation of people who are there. Consider who was there. You have Jesus there, and he, and he begins to radiate in his glory. So in a sense, you have Jesus Christ in his glorified form. You have Moses and Elijah, who are what? Old Testament saints. And then you have Peter, James, and John, who are what? New Testament believers and followers of Jesus. So here you have Jesus in his glory, you have Old Testament saints, and you have as well the presence of New Testament saints and followers of Jesus, all together, all three groups in one realm, conscious of and interacting with one another experientially. And is that not exactly what it will be like in the kingdom age? 
when Jesus returns back to the earth in his second coming in power and glory as the king of kings and establishes his rule and reign in the kingdom age there will be Jesus in his power and his glorified form as well as the presence of Old Testament saints and New Testament believers you and I all interacting with one another so Peter saw the transfiguration in a sense as a preview of coming attractions spiritually he saw it as something that foreshadowed the power and coming of Jesus in the kingdom age. That's probably why we read that Peter said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. This is, and that's probably why Peter too wanted to build the tabernacles, the shelters for all of them because he thought, man, I do not want to depart from this. This is wonderful because his heart resonated with that experience of the kingdom of God. And it was out of that spiritual experience that Peter then had a sense of confidence, he says, to make known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it was out of that experience that Peter says, that gave me confidence that what I saw is going to one day come to pass. And Peter then lived with a personal assurance of the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that affected the way he lived. You know, by way of application for us this morning, can I ask you, by way of examination, do you live with the assurance and the persuasion of the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? John said that he who believes and has that hope in him will purify himself even as he is made pure. And to live with the persuasion of the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will affect the way that you personally live your life on this earth now. In verse 17, Peter says, For he, Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, declaring, he heard, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So here in verse 17, Peter reflects upon how in that instance, God the father was both validating his son for who he was and expressing his pleasure with his life. Peter says in that instance, when the father was speaking, he tells us verse 17, what was happening is that he says, Jesus was receiving from God the father honor and glory for both who he is and also for what he was doing. And let me just say this in connection to that. I think one of the clear ways that we can often distinguish the voice of God when we're trying to determine if it's God's voice, when God's voice is speaking, the end result will be honor and glory being given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14 through 16 multiple times that when the Spirit of God is at work, the Spirit of truth, He will glorify me. And the Father has a supreme intention on this planet. And that is this. It's to point people to Jesus. And it's to get people to look to Jesus. And it's to get people to honor Jesus and to glorify Jesus. Whether it's the unconverted soul recognizing you need to honor and submit to Jesus and let Jesus save you. Or whether it is the life of the Christian, God is always looking to speak into our lives and speak in our midst in such a way where we would stop giving honor and glory to other things or to other people or even to ourselves in ways that we shouldn't and that we would want to honor and glorify Jesus. 
and look to him. And I think it's one of the clearest ways we can distinguish. God, is this you? Is this you speaking? Is this you leading? Well, ask, well, does that lead to honor and glory for Jesus? Because if it does, most likely it's the Lord. And if it doesn't, potentially you need to reevaluate if indeed that's the voice of the Lord or maybe the voice of someone else or even your own voice misleading you. And he remembered exactly how that voice from heaven said specifically that day two things. God made two statements from heaven. The first thing he said is, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. God the Father was identifying who Jesus was. He was declaring that Jesus was the son of God, honoring Jesus publicly as the very son of God. And I'll tell you, it is spiritually and internally, eternally important that each one of us correctly identify who Jesus is in our life. That Jesus Christ is the son of God. He is not just a good moral teacher, though he was that. He's not just a compassionate spiritual leader in history. He's not just a miracle worker and a healer, though he was all those things as well. Jesus is the Son of God. That's why he was a good spiritual leader. That's why he was an incredible teacher. And that's why he was a miracle worker, because he was first and foremost the very Son of God. He's higher than the law and the prophets, which Moses and Elijah represented. And he was God dwelling in flesh among us. And the Father loved him and sent him to dwell here to reveal what God was like and then ultimately to die on the cross for our sins to make the perfect sacrifice for our forgiveness. And our view of Jesus and who he is will incredibly affect how we relate to and respond to him. Let me say that again. Our personal view of Jesus and who he is to us will always affect how we relate to and respond to him. Because see, if I choose to believe, and it's a choice, it doesn't change the fact. If you choose not to believe Jesus is God, you're just wrong. <laughs> it doesn't change the fact of who he is. You can say, you're not Tony Montemiro. Well, you don't have to believe that. It doesn't change that I am. And see, if we choose to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior and the Lord, then he will be reverently worshipped in our life. And he will be submitted to as the Lord over our life. And as a sinful person, when I realize that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior, as a sinful person, I will beg him for his forgiveness. I will beseech him to have mercy on me as an unworthy, sinful individual who has offended him in ways in my life and I will cry out to him for the forgiveness and the cleansing of my sin. And it will cause me to want to understanding who he is and who has the power to judge and banish me from his kingdom and to cast me in the lake of fire will cause me to want to humble myself in his presence and to humbly ask in faith, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, have mercy on me and to receive the free gift of eternal life that he is offering to me when I recognize him for who he is. And secondly, the father also then stated regarding Jesus as the son of God, he says, in him I am well pleased. Now that statement, in whom I am well pleased, indicates that the father was fully satisfied with Jesus. He was perfectly pleased with all of who Jesus did was and all of what Jesus did. 
You know, Jesus himself in John chapter 6, verse 38, made this statement. He said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. At one point, Jesus also made this statement. He said, I always do those things that please the Father. And here on that day in the transfiguration experience of Christ, when the Father spoke from heaven, here you have God the Father from heaven now validating that Jesus did exactly what he declared, that the Father was pleased with the life of Christ that was lived in complete adherence to the will of the Father in heaven. Here you have the Father saying, in whom I am well pleased, saying, I am fully satisfied and accept the life lived by you as my son. I'm fully satisfied with your sinless perfection and your total adherence to the will of God. And I receive you as the perfect sacrifice to make atonement for the sins of humanity. Now, I point this out for this reason this morning, because let us remember, it is wonderful news to know that the Father is fully pleased with the life of His Son, Jesus Christ. Because that means this this morning. If our lives by faith and relationship are joined to Jesus Christ, then that can mean that God can be pleased with my life and your life as well. Not because of my performance, God forbid, <laughs> Not because somehow I can earn his approval as I try and be a good boy day after day. No, absolutely not. But the Father can be pleased with my life and the Father can be pleased with and satisfied and accept your life simply because your life is joined together with the life of his son, Jesus Christ. Because as the Bible teaches in the New Testament, when you choose to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, in a sense, your life is joined spiritually with Christ. And God removes your sin and he robes you with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And you then become accepted and pleasing in the sight of the Father in heaven because of your union with Jesus Christ and becoming one with him. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6 tells it this way. It says that God has made us accepted in the beloved. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the Bible says to the Christian that we are accepted in the beloved. God accepts you if you are in the life of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, because the father's pleased with Jesus. Now that means two things this morning. That means, first of all, if you are not in personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you are not acceptable to God. Well, that's offensive. Yes, but it's honest. And it's biblically true. The Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. That on our best day, we can't be pleasing to God. God is holy. We all fall short of the standard of perfection that God requires. And our lives can never be pleasing to God. We can't make ourselves right with God. If we could, there was no reason for Jesus Christ to come and to suffer and to die and to be beaten and spit upon and abused and sacrificed in the way that the Father in heaven allowed him to do. That's testimony. If righteousness could be attained by the law, the Bible says, then Christ died in vain. The very fact that we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God is something we must understand and therefore we must find acceptance through God's means. And God's means is his son because God says, him I accept, his sinlessness, his perfection. So therefore, if I want to become a part of God's family, 
I must marry Jesus Christ by putting my faith in him and saying, Jesus, save me. I need to be related to you and in Christ because if my life is hidden in Christ by my faith in him, then you become accepted. That's how you become accepted. Not saying God accepted me. No, God, thank you that you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his raising from the dead. So, Father, I pray, would you forgive me because of what Jesus did? And Jesus, would you save me that you can make me acceptable through my relationship and union with you? And that means this morning, if you are a Christian secondarily, listen, you don't have to earn God's approval. Stop struggling with the thought of, well, how can I make myself more acceptable to God? You, you were never acceptable. God accepts you because of Jesus. You have faith in Jesus. You love Jesus. You walk with Jesus. And listen, by faith, receive his acceptance. You don't have to earn his acceptance. Get out of your mind this distorted idea of, i got to earn their approval, earn their acceptance. Listen, don't let your experiences of life force you to think that you've got to earn God's acceptance. By faith, you receive God's acceptance. You believe in his acceptance. And you believe his blessing and hand is upon you because he's pleased with his son and therefore is at the same time simultaneously pleased with you. Peter says, verse 18, and we heard this voice ourselves. Didn't just see it. We heard these things which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So again, Peter affirming that he experienced this personally and he says, not only do we see it with our eyes, but he said, we also heard the voice of God as well. Now, when I look at this account and the statement Peter makes in verse 18, we heard this voice, the voice of God, which came from heaven. And notice when he heard it, when we were with him, when we were with Jesus, on the holy mountain. It is an interesting take note there that as they were spending time away from others and alone with Jesus Christ, it was in that instance that they heard the voice of God. I can't help but to think that there's certainly an application there for us that that's a great reminder that sometimes it's when we get alone and away from others and we step away from being with others and we get in a quiet place in a quiet time and are alone with Jesus, that many times that's when we begin to hear the voice of God. There are lots of voices going on around us all the time. And sometimes when we take the time, whether it's on a daily basis, to just go get away somewhere for a quiet place for 15 minutes or a half hour, or whether periodically we get away on a retreat or something, we say, I just need to get alone and I, I need to separate myself from others and sit together and be with Jesus as he led them up that mountain, that many times is when we hear the voice of God from heaven speaking to us powerful and personal things that are transforming for our own lives. Now, in verses 19 to 21, Peter is now going to say to us, despite that incredible spiritual experience, which no doubt probably was one of the most powerful experiences Peter ever had in his life, I mean, it had to be incredible, Peter, James, and John, to have that privileged experience. But Peter's going to say in our next verses, no, no matter how powerful that was and how certain I am that the authenticity and genuineness of that experience really happened, he's going to say in the next verses, yet I would still, still, no matter how powerful that was and how real I know it was, I would still put way more faith and reliability upon the written record of God's word as my guidepost for my spiritual beliefs 
in my spiritual life. Look what he says, verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter's main point we're going to see here is that the greatest guarantee that any believer in any generation has of hearing God's voice is simply to heed what the written word of God says in its account. He's going to say, as real as that experience was for me, the transfiguration incredible life-changing reliable it wasn't he said it was a real thing i experienced with god but he's going to say as real as that experience was he says here the written revelation of the record of the prophetic scriptures is still way more certain and way more reliable for me as the basis of my faith and for anyone else listen nothing wrong with experiences yet the truth of the matter is experiences can be misleading and we need to remember that. And the truth of the matter is, we cannot all claim the same spiritual experiences, even as Christians. But what we can all do is we can all share the same written revelation of the Word of God that's unchanging, that has been given to every one of us as a basis for our faith and the reliability upon what is true and what is not regarding spiritual things. So Peter says, verse 19, we have the prophetic word confirmed. In other words, Peter saw that experience even of the transfiguration as it reflected the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and portrayed his second coming in the kingdom age. Peter saw that in his mind as just another confirmation of one of the many prophecies given to us in the Old Testament scriptures. In his mind, the transfiguration pictured the Messiah and the kingdom of God that the Old Testament spoke about. And in the Old Testament, there were hundreds of specific prophecies about Messiah, about the Savior, about who he would be. And, and ultimately, all of those prophetic scriptures identified the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus came and fulfilled them. And the prophecies of Messiah in the Old Testament spoke of his first coming, but they also spoke of his second coming in power and glory. They also speak in the Old Testament prophecies of the coming kingdom age. For example, just we know alone that there are over 300 plus specific and unique prophecies or predictions of what the Messiah would be and, and, and where he would be born and what he would do with his life given to us just about the first coming of the Messiah. And we know historically, it's historical fact that the person of the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled completely and accurately each and every one of those prophecies. Now, there have been mathematical studies before. It is a statistical miracle that someone could enter into the world and fulfill that many specific predictions. Where he would be born, Bethlehem. How he would be born, via virgin. Where he would dwell, the things that he would do. That someone statistically could, by random chance, step into this world and fulfill all those things. It's a statistical impossibility. And see, the point very simply is this. 
the fact that Jesus fulfilled all those things accurately, perfectly, completely in his first coming really is what makes it very reasonable to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe upon who he is. Our faith is not a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. It's a very reasonable faith. The evidence of fulfilled scripture of Jesus' life makes it totally sure and reliable. Fulfilled prophecy is what confirms who Jesus really is. He is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. And the Bible, therefore, becomes a much safer and sure thing to base our faith and beliefs off than just personal spiritual experiences. And this is the point that Peter wants to convey as someone who had a powerful spiritual experience. Was my experience great? Peter says, yes. But I would never let us experience supersede what the Scripture gives to us as a confirmation of the truth of what we really need to know. The foundation of our faith should not be built on experiences, but the unchanging word of God. Peter speaking of the assurance and guarantee of the scripture's reliability. And though his experience was powerful, he says, but beyond that, we have the prophetic word confirmed. The scriptures are confirmed by who Jesus is and what he's done. The old King James says this in this way. It says, we have the more sure word of prophecy. See, the Bible is indicating to us that those spiritual experiences are wonderful and they have their place. We have something way more sure and reliable in what we are holding in our hands this morning. That is the written revelation of the record of the word of God that's been given to us. And we should always use this, the scripture, as our measuring line for what is true and authentic spiritually. Listen, our world, our world is scheduled for signs and wonders and, and, and demonic deception to continue. And there is going to come a time when you're not going to be able to believe everything that you see with your eyes or that you hear with your ears. But if you look to the prophetic scripture and word of God confirmed in who Jesus is and what the word of God says, you will safeguard yourself of what is true and you will be able to understand what is right and wrong in regards to spiritual matters. Peter says we have the prophetic word of God. Look what he says, verse 19, which you do well to heed, he says, as a light that shines in a dark place. Would you agree our world is a pretty dark place? And it just continues to get darker and it will continue to get darker. The term there is literally like murky water that you have trouble seeing to, uh, through. And he says the word of God functions like a light to help us see clearly in a dark world. Helping us to see where we are at and how to walk and how we should live and what is right and what is wrong and to help us to be able to determine where things are going in the days ahead. And that's why Peter says here, he says, you do well, not if you just hear the word of God, verse 19, you do well, he says, to heed, to heed the word of God as a light that shines in a dark place. Listen, we have to live responsively to what the word of God says, not just listen to it. We have to be willing to heed it, to obey it, to respond to it in the way in which it speaks truth into our lives. There must be a response to the scripture. That is what is critical. And when you respond to the word of God, then you have light 
to walk through the world in a dark place. If you ignore what the word of God says because you choose to unbelieve what it's stating or because you in resistance say, well, I like this part, but I'm not going to obey this because I want to continue to live in this way. Listen, you are darkening your path in front of you, but as you live in light of responsiveness to the word of God and you say, I will obey it because it has authority, because it is the very word of God, then God will give you the light that you need as you navigate your way in this world. The text says we should follow God's word as a light in the dark until, he says, the morning star rises excuse me, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now the word morning star is a reference to that light-giving body that would birth the dawning of a new day. And no doubt as Peter says this term, the morning star, I think he's thinking of Jesus. In fact, Revelation 22, Jesus even says regarding himself, I am the bright and morning star. And no doubt... Jesus is the light giver who will one day return to this dark world and bring the dawning of a new day. But more than that, each and every day in my life, if I heed what the word of God says, the Bible is promising us that if we heed what the word of God says, then every day will dawn with the morning star Jesus arising in our hearts. And see, as we respond to what the Word of God says now, that lets Jesus Christ arise in our hearts experientially and take rulership over our hearts. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And if you follow me, you won't walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And see, as you respond to Jesus, the wonderful thing is Jesus internally can give light in your soul to help you see what is right and recognize what is wrong and to pursue the light of God rather than the darkness of the devil in this world. Peter then says, verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture, he says, is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what Peter is giving to us here in verse 20 and 21 is basically a strong exhortation to the reality of the origin of Scripture. The origin of Scripture and its reliability. Peter tells us what Scripture is not there in verse 20. He says, Scripture is not, or did it not originate, he says, it did not originate from private interpretation. Now, in one sense, it's true that no prophecy of Scripture should ever be given private interpretation in the sense that we should never take a passage of Scripture or a verse and somehow privately interpret it apart from other passages of Scripture. You should never take an independent verse or some portion of Scripture and try and give it some independent meaning that contradicts the rest of Scripture as a whole. That is very poor interpretation practices of the Scripture where a person says, well, this Scripture is saying this. Well, wait a minute. That may sound clever and help you push your doctrine, but that contradicts what the rest and whole of Scripture says. We never want to give private, isolated interpretation to Scripture. But the more critical thing Peter is trying to convey here is the origin and liability of Scripture that's not so much speaking of what Scripture means, but what Scripture is. In fact, when you look at what Peter says, that the Scripture is not of private interpretation, it literally could be translated, no prophecy of Scripture came from the prophet's own unfolding. 
In other words, it wasn't his own ideas he was unfolding as he was writing those things down. It wasn't his man-made ideas and concepts. Instead, he says, verse 21, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were being moved by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying the word of God was not man's ideas or input. It didn't originate in their own will. He says it wasn't man's ideas. or it's not a, This is not a man-made document. This, this ink on paper is not the same as every other book that exists on this planet. It's not a man-made document. Men were simply, listen, the method that God used to communicate to mankind. Well, that's kind of a wise idea, don't you think? If you're an ant, how do you communicate to an ant? You become an ant, right? So God, I've got to talk to man. How about I use men? Well, that's a bright idea. So, so God used mankind, he used unique individuals as a method to convey his word. That's what he says here when he says, these holy men of God who were writing scripture were speaking only as they were being moved by the Holy Spirit. That term there, moved, is a term in the Greek that spoke of how a, a ship was pushed in a certain direction by the wind filling its sails, that it was carried along by the wind and being moved in the direction by which the wind was guiding it as it blew through its sails. In a sense, you could say, God, without removing personality or individuality of man, worked through distinct individuals, guiding and influencing their thoughts and communication to convey his word. So God moved men by his spirit to record the things that he wanted them to share. You know, one of the greatest proofs, I tell you, of the inspiration of the Bible is often what we call internal unity. Internal unity. And that very simply is this, to remember that the book in our hands that we're studying this morning is really not a single book. It's actually a composition of a library full of books. 66 different books, books of law and poetry, prophecy and history that are letters written personally in the New Testament. And in these 66 books, they were penned, listen, by over 40 different human authors, all of whom were being moved by the Spirit and had great diversity. Solomon was a king. Amos was a herdsman. Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a scholar. Luke was a doctor. Uh, Moses and David were shepherds. And those 40 men lived in different time periods historically. The Bible was written over a series of 1,500 years with a 400-year silent period between even the Old Testament and the New Testament. Those 40 authors that recorded Scripture also lived on three different world continents. And the original Scriptures were written in three different languages of Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. And here's the point. Though you have 40 different men with diverse backgrounds, kings and fishermen and herdsmen and scholars and doctors who lived in vastly different times of history over 1,500 years, wrote from three different continents in three different languages, yet in the midst of all that you have not one contradiction in the entire Bible. There's internal unity. Now you take three to five minutes and let them write on any other subject, math, history, science, and very quickly you will find out they don't all agree on the same thing. But yet here you have the word of God and understand, considering how it was co composed by God, the way he worked, there was a tremendously high percentile 
of a reason why there should be contradictions in it. And yet there is not. Because of the divine authorship of God himself, there is internal unity because there was one author, God, moving by the Holy Spirit, prompting men to say what he would, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, the Bible says. You know, Luther declared this, it cannot be otherwise, for the scriptures are divine. In them God speaks, and they are his word. To hear or to read the scriptures is nothing else than to hear God. Hey, in light of that this morning, I would ask this. Do you want to hear God's voice? Then stay in your Bible. Or pick up your Bible and read it. And if this book is indeed, as I believe it is, the very words of God, then what level of priority should it have in our lives? Great morning for us to reevaluate the value of God's word.